Hey, my name's Jacqueline. And I'm Jody. Welcome to the Speech Banana Podcast, where we, two Asian Canadian SOPs in the making, discuss all things speech and language related. So, first things first, why are we called Speech Banana? Well, there's actually two meanings. As SOPs, we know the speech banana as a visual tool describing where most human speech sounds lie on an audiogram. As for the second meaning, Jody and I are both Asian Canadian, specifically we're both Chinese. And the term often used to describe people like us in our culture is banana, which means that we look Asian on the outside, but our values and the way we think are more aligned with Westerners. We picked this name for our podcast because we think it captures the essence of what this podcast is all about. We want to talk about speech and language-related matters through a unique bicultural lens. The goal of this podcast is to be a resource for SLPs who work with bilingual children. We also want to use this podcast to advocate for greater cultural competency among SLPs. Hope you enjoy! Hi, Jody. Hi, Jacqueline. <laughs> Are you excited to do this podcast? Very a little nervous. Me but... too. Yeah. I feel like we've been talking about this for like a month. Yeah, <laughs> preparing for this, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be diving into some common myths about language development in bilingual children and kind of trying to debunk it or looking at what research says about those myths Um, and also looking at what assessment would look like for bilingual children and yeah things to consider when Mm -hmm. we're doing assessment. Yeah so we wanted to talk about myths and trying to kind of debunk it Um, Because we think there are still a lot of misconceptions out there about language development in bilingual children. And we wanted to kind of be able to provide accurate information for SLPs so that they can also provide accurate information to parents. And I think a lot of these misconceptions often affect how we approach assessment and intervention for bilingual children. So I think it's important to know what is fact and not continue or not (laughs) believe in these kind of misconceptions or myths. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Take it away. Okay. (laughs) So the first myth that we're going to look at, um, so, oh, I forgot to mention that we found these myths through like a blog and we'll provide like all the references in our podcast description. So everyone can take a look if you want. And we also tried to approach it using, uh, well, we used a research paper by Hoff and Kaur that they wrote in 2015. So that's where we were getting a lot of the research from. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back into myth one. So the myth says that exposing children to multiple languages may cause delays in speech development or cultivate a speech disorder. Um, And research shows that it's not true. So, Learning two languages does take longer than learning one. Um, So the rate of development in each language will be 
a little slower if you compare it to someone or a monolingual child who's only learning one language is going to be a little slower. Um, so on average, bilingual children lag behind their monolingual peers when uh, the knowledge of language is measured separately. So they're going to lag behind, but this doesn't mean that there's a delay or that they have a language disorder. Um, and research also found that a child may have a dominant language, but that's not equivalent to an only language. So um, assessing a bilingual child in only their dominant language is not equivalent to assessing a monolingual child. So that's where assessing in both languages is very important um, to avoid misdiagnosis. Um, and also, uh, they also, research also found that the measure of total vocabulary provides the best indicator of a young bilingual child's language learning abilities. So looking at their total vocabulary in both languages is a better indicator compared to just looking at one language. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So myth number two, learning two languages will confuse your child. Okay. So this is not true. Research tells us that it's not even necessary for those two languages to be kept separate to avoid confusion. Um, I think there's this misconception out there that um, that when you learn two languages, you can't mix them, that you have to keep them separate and um, mixing them is going to confuse the child. Um, and the more technical term for mixing languages is code switching. Um, and this is something that a lot of bilinguals do. And the formal definition of code switching is moving from one language to another and even using words from both languages in a single sentence. So just because you see a kid doing this, it doesn't mean that they can't differentiate between the two languages. Um, as I mentioned before, bilingual adults do this when they can't find a word in the language that they're speaking. Um, I know I do this all the time. I, I know Jody does this. We honestly do it to each other. Um, and it demonstrates an awareness of which people in their environment understand which language. Yeah. So, you know, I know that we have a lot of personal thoughts on code switching. Yeah. So, Jody, what's your personal experience with it? Well, I, I always code switch with my parents because so I speak Cantonese with my parents, same as Jacqueline. Um, and I code switch a lot because that's how I communicate with my parents um, and mixing English with my Cantonese. Um, and it's, I think it's a really big part of how I communicate. It's like one, I'm not completely proficient in Cantonese, but at the same time, I still want to speak in the same language as my parents do. Um, and I think that's also really important for them too, that I'm still speaking Cantonese, even if it's like mixed with my English, just because that's part of who they are and they want to carry that on with me. Um, so yeah, I think code switching is a huge part in like, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think from my personal experience, it's really similar to yours, Jody, and um like I speak, we, we, I call it Chinglish. I feel like 
a lot of different people have different names for that. But, um, you know, I speak Chinglish with my parents and really similar to you. It's just the way that we communicate. And I, I agree. I think it's something that's really special. And I think like to add on to what you were saying, I think even though a lot of bilingual families code switch, I think each family kind of does it in their own way. And like each family has rules of like what's acceptable and what's not. And it's just this kind of really special way of how, you know, at least I communicate with my family and it seems like yours too. Yeah, for sure. And if someone told you not to code switch, because I feel like there is this misconception out there that you shouldn't mix languages. So if you got that advice from somebody, what kind of impact would that have on your life? Well, I think it would really affect how I talk with my parents, like to think that I would only be able to speak one language. Like my mom, especially her English isn't amazing. Isn't like, yeah, she's not too great at English. So I think being only able to speak English or like kind of my dominant language would really impact how I communicate with my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it'd be like, it's sad for me to know that I can't speak the language that my parents speak and also sad for them to see their children not being able to you know continue like with the language that they speak yeah yeah I know I totally hear you I guess for our listeners out there that might not know that might have a question of like oh well why can't you just speak Cantonese with your parents like why 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 this hybrid you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I I grew up in Canada, right? So my English is my dominant language. It's the language I'm better at or more proficient at. Mm-hmm. So like there are times where like there are just words and like vocabulary that I just don't know in Cantonese. So I have to mix it in with English and it's just mm-hmm. it's yeah, I think it comes with like my proficiency in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think something that like, you know, Jody and I, you, we've had conversations about is like, it's just a really big part of how we communicate with our families. And I feel like if someone told me not to do that, like, you know, a big part of how I communicate and participate in my family would be denied. Um, yeah. I think like bottom line, it is a really big part of my cultural identity and what it means for me to be bicultural, bilingual. And um, yeah, I just think it's really important that clinicians, just people out there are aware of that and have that in the back of their minds when, when we talk to our clients. Mm-hmm. Okay. So myth three is says that parents must be fluent in a language if they want to if they want their child to grow up speaking it. Mm -hmm. So evidence says that the best way for a child to learn a language is by providing them with rich language models. So that would mean speaking the language that you are most able to do that. In the paper that we're referencing, um, it mentioned how immigrant immigrant parents shouldn't be discouraged from speaking their native language. Um, There are many benefits in doing so. it helps maintain 
their cultural heritage um, and language is a huge part of it. So um, being, you know, parents being able to still speak their native language helps maintain their cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, And research also found that um, that there are stronger cognitive outcomes for immigrant families that spoke both their language or their native language and English as compared Mm -hmm. to only English. And they also found that higher order language comprehension and literacy skills do appear to transfer from one language to another. So if you're speaking in your native language, those skills were found to cross over to English. There are often parents that ask whether they should only speak English with their child if they want them to learn English. And like, I think that's a myth that's important to address because telling parents to only speak English is going to deny them of a big or huge part of who they are. Um, and research shown that there's nothing wrong with letting them speak their native language. Mm-hmm. And that also lets them provide a richer, um, richer language models if they're more um, proficient in their native language. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Research has also found that it's not necessary to keep the languages separate in a child's mm-hmm. experience. Like they won't confuse it. And there's sometimes this principle that parents have or like clinicians still have too, that it's like one parent, one language principle mm-hmm. where like one parent will only speak English and then one parent will only speak the native language. But there really isn't a huge body of research behind it that supports it. And, you know, like a lot of research shows that kids are, won't, it won't confuse children. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this myth, Jacqueline? Yeah, I do. Um, I think, you know, I can definitely see the perspective that this advice is coming from. And I think that it would apply to a lot of um, bilingual, bicultural parents. Um, I can see how if you are an immigrant parent who really wants to preserve the cultural heritage and identity um, of your child, and you really want to pass that down, how this advice would be so freeing and would be such good news to hear that it's okay for them to speak their native language. And in fact, it's, it's more beneficial for them to do that than if they were forced to speak English, which maybe it's a language that they're not so comfortable in. Maybe they don't like, they feel forced to speak English. And I think that advice would be so freeing for those parents. Um, I think as I was as I was kind of pondering this fact, I was also thinking about other perspectives and how this advice might not land in that same way for other parents who might think differently and might in fact feel very um, restrictive and um, I guess not very freeing. Um, I'm just thinking about parents who, Maybe maybe they're immigrant parents who have come to Canada or the States and they want to practice their English and they want to be more integrated in Canadian or American society and they want that opportunity to practice with their child. 
Um, and I'm just thinking about like, how would that feel to be that parent? I'm also thinking about parents who can speak both languages decently well. Like, for example, you know, my parents' English, my dad's English is better than my mom's, but they both like went to university in Canada. They both worked in Canada. They both have like pretty decent grasp of the language. It's not perfect, but you know, like what are the implications for those parents? And you know, also thinking about people like me, you know, my dominant language is English, but speaking Cantonese is a really big part of who I am. And if I were to ever have kids, like that's something I want to be able to pass down to my child's. I want to have that freedom to speak my native language to my to my kid, even though maybe I'm not the most proficient at it. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm not very good at it. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking about those different scenarios and how not all bilingual, bicultural parents present the same way. And how as clinicians, like, we have to be aware of that. Um, and I think that that in certain contexts, this, like it might send the message that you have to be good enough at a certain language, in this case, English, in order to speak it. And otherwise it's not welcome. Otherwise you're not allowed to speak it. Um, and, you know, so of course, like, I don't think everybody would see it like that, but I can see certain scenarios where some people might view it like that. And, you know, obviously we don't want the message to land that way. So I think it, yeah, I was thinking a lot about it. And I think as clinicians, this really speaks to the importance of collaborating with clients and really understanding what their needs are, what their expectations are, and having that conversation with parents to see what they want, you know, like, what do they want for their kid? What, what how do they want to speak to their child? And, um, to be able to work together to set like realistic goals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What yeah. Do you think? Like these, these recommendations shouldn't be like a one size fits all. Like there's always like things to consider and like to be aware that parents are coming in with different expectations and different priorities. And I think as clinicians, we need to be aware of that. And like, yeah, like what you said, like to collaborate and, and, and talk with them and see what is most important for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why don't we take a break now and we'll be back. Welcome back everybody. Now we're going to take some time to talk about assessment considerations when working with bilingual kids. So as SLPs, what do we need to know when it comes to assessing this population and how do we pivot to meet their needs? So the research for this section is taken from a paper written by Delamo White and Jin in 2011. Again, check out our references. Um, yeah, so I guess first off, let's talk about why assessment has to look different for bilingual kids. Why can't we just assess bilingual kids the same way that we assess tradition or sorry that we assess monolingual kids um so bottom line is that traditional assessment for monolingual children will not work for this population of kids that is what the research 
has found. That is what it has showed us. Um, and, you know, really a lot of it comes down to standardized tests being problematic for this population. Reason number one is that standardized tests are normed primarily on monolingual kids. So if we are comparing bilingual kids to this population, it's like comparing apples to oranges. It just, it doesn't work. Um, it, it ain't right. Um, second reason is that there is a content bias. So this means that things that are common in one culture are not necessarily common in another. So for example, one researcher who worked with children from rural communities in Peru found that the pictures used for assessment needed to be things that the children would know from their rural environment in order to make an accurate interpretation. So this is just one of the ways that content bias can um, come through and affect the accuracy of, um, of testing. And another reason that standardized tests are problematic for this population is linguistic bias. So it's basically just this idea that the legitimacy of dialectal variation is not acknowledged due to the strict marking criteria of many standardized assessments. So really what we want everyone to take away from this section is that if our interpretation is only based on results from standardized tests, this increases the risk of misdiagnosing a bilingual child. What research has found that the gold standard or something be, would be the most accurate for bilingual children is through a sociocultural approach. So that's a more holistic approach where we're really seeing the child in within their social and cultural environments that they're in. So that approach would include things like observing the child in multiple settings with a variety of different people. Um, it could include interviewing members of the family to learn more about the family dynamics, interactions and attitudes and their cultural differences. Um, and the list can go on. It allows us as clinicians to make less biased and more valid interpretation of the findings. So research also shows us that combining multiple approaches helps mitigate the weaknesses that are present in each singular approach. So things like they found that criterion reference and dynamic assessments were more accurate in identifying language disorders for bilingual children when it's integrated with sociocultural approach. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Why is that? Like what weakness does each peace mitigate? <laughs> well, for criterion reference, so that's where you're measuring a child's level of performance on a very specific skill. So it could involve things like language sampling. So that reduces that cultural and linguistic bias because you're able to use materials and interaction patterns that are familiar, familiar to the child. So it helps kind of mitigate some of that bias. Mm -hmm. um, but it's Using criterion reference measures, it's only effective if it's you also understand the child and like their the actual cultural differences to make those kind like to use the right materials and interaction patterns. So that's why it's found to be more effective when it's integrated into social culture approach because you're understanding child from their 
so like their environments that they're in and then making those adjustments to your interaction patterns and things like that. Right. Yeah. And dynamic assessments, um, it's where you're looking at more of the child language learning abilities and their a potential to learn. So through like kind of a test, teach, retest. So that kind of allows us as clinicians to make adjustments throughout the intervention according to what the child needs, specifically mm-hmm. needs, rather than like what their performance tells us based on test results comparing to monolingual child. Like it's more, mm-hmm. yeah, we can make adjustments specific to the child. Right. But yeah, and I think that also comes in with why we need social culture approach because you need to be aware of like the influence of their culture on their performance mm-hmm. to make those kind of adjustments or looking to look at what the child really needs you need to understand their social and cultural environments mm-hmm. so I think yeah that's why we they found that it's really most effective when it's integrated with social cultural approach okay yeah yeah that makes sense to me and I think also with dynamic assessment like the I guess the advantage is that you can you can kind of see like how the kid is learning and um, what that process is like instead of like testing them on their existing knowledge. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's pretty, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But that seems really hard to do like a really big ask. Yeah. I think a lot of it, I think also with like, these kind of approaches like it's best to assess in both languages mm-hmm. but like you mentioned like in reality it's just it, it is very time consuming there's often like a lack of resources and it's so it's often hard to do these kind of this like reach this kind of gold standard yeah yeah totally <laughs> but I think even though it's like difficult to achieve it, I think this is something we still need to really be aware of and consider that like there is like a goal, like something that we want to achieve, like that will provide the best or most accurate results. Mm -hmm. Cause Mm -hmm. yeah, I think there could be a lot of kind of underlying messages when we're only assessing in a certain way or assessing only in English, for example. Yeah, for sure. I think it's like, like, it's hard. I think that part of the conversation is acknowledging the limitations and the reality of um, the environment that the SLP is working in. And I think like, even from our conversations with SLPs in the fields, like, you know, we've spoken to several SLPs who work in different school boards. It it seems like it's a lot to ask for. And a lot of the times, like that SLP is not going to be able to speak both languages that that kid speaks. And like, if you don't speak that language, how do you assess that child? And like, I, I can see, I can totally understand and empathize with the reality that these SLPs are working against and the limitations that they have. Um, But I think it's also, you know, like recognizing that while also not settling and 
continuing to advocate for those resources and advocating for the gold standard. I don't know. I think it's hard, but for sure there needs to be that balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess this is kind of the goal with this podcast as well. It's to, to advocate for these kind of changes or needs that needs to be made or. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So I came up with a list of things that, um, just like a couple of things that clinicians can do. Cause you know, obviously I don't, I think it's important that you and I acknowledge that we don't have that experience in the field. So I think everything that we know is very, like, it's very theory. It's very idealistic. It's like, you know, very research-based. And I think that's our strength, like being able to speak from the research and have that time to do the reading. Um, but yeah, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we don't, we don't have that experience, but I guess from my understanding, I think some practical things that clinicians can do is to take as much of these principles that were presented today and do the best that they can, you know, like I think something that we've touched on is using a combination of approaches, um, integrating as much of the sociocultural approach as you can if possible, assessing the child in all the languages that they speak, because we know that, as we spoke about before, assessing the child in their dominant language is not the same thing as assessing a monolingual child. Um, And also, I think finally, like equipping yourself with knowledge of the evidence on this topic, like staying up to date with the most current research and, and really taking that time to equip yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think even when you're working with a child who's bilingual, it's making that effort to understand their culture as well and like learning more about their culture so that you can make as much of the changes as you need to for for the child and understanding mm-hmm. kind of the context and the background that they come from. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's, it's one of those things that's like hard to do, but I think it's really like important to do. Mm-hmm. It's like hard, but completely necessary. Um, yeah. I just want to circle back to something that you kind of mentioned earlier. So you talked about, um, you know, as SLPs, what message are we conveying if we don't make that effort, you know, if we settle for only assessing a bilingual child's English or not even assessing them until their English is good enough, like what kind of message does that send? And I really want to circle back to that. Well, I think one thing it's, it kind of conveys this message of like their English is the only thing or like the thing that is worthy of being assessed or like they need to have to be really good at English or like to to be assessed and kind of their second language isn't important enough I guess in a way Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that could really be a big impact on their cultural identity as well because language is a huge part of it and to kind of to say that a child's second language isn't really as important to be assessed. 
mm-hmm. kind of shows, I guess, might make a child feel like their culture is not important or the culture that's different from everyone else is not as important. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think we, like something that we've talked about a lot is like, we always kind of, like there's this rhetoric of, oh, like speaking multiple languages is good. And, um, you know, speaking languages leads to like stronger language skills. And there's that rhetoric, but like, we forget that there is a culture that comes with that a lot of the time. And for sure, I think you're not just rejecting a child's language, you're rejecting their culture as well. And those things go hand in hand. It's a package deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when people are, they, when they say those kind of things, like speaking two languages is this gift. And like, mm-hmm. if we're saying that, I think we also need to show that in how we act and like, are we making that effort to make sure that, you know, that we're um, considering their cultural differences and like the cultural background that they come from? Like, are we making that effort? And like, are are our actions reflecting the things that we're telling people and telling these kids that, you know, both languages should be celebrated? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I vibe with that totally. Um, I think like, I just want to speak from my personal experience without getting like too personal, you know, like as an Asian Canadian woman, I've definitely received messaging that the Asian side of me is not welcome, you know, like that to be accepted and to be respected, I have to assimilate and deny or hide away parts of my cultural identity. And unfortunately, this is the world that these kids are growing up in. And, you know, they're going to have to deal with this type of messaging from other sources already. And as SLPs, I don't want us to be part of that equation. Like, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to perpetuate the message that a whole part of that kid is not important when they're going to grow up in a world where people are going to tell them that implicitly or explicitly anyway. And, um, you know, in my opinion, this is why it's just so important that we do the work with these kids. And like, we always say that the work we do as SLPs matter, you know, like that our job is important. And I think this is another reason why it's important. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Jacqueline. I think that's something that I can also relate a lot to as a, um, as an Asian Canadian as well. Um, But I think that's a good place to end off for this episode. I think there's still a lot to talk about and there's so much more we can dive into. But I think just ending off with the importance for SLPs to take that extra mile to take, make that effort for bilingual children. We need to be able to acknowledge all these, the context that these children are coming from. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a good place to end off and, We've learned a lot through this process, um, kind of diving into the evidence, um, but also integrating that with our own personal experiences and kind of, I think this will really influence how we see ourselves as clinicians in the future. And we hope that through this podcast that you'd also be encouraged to think more about bilingualism and biculturalism and the implications it has on our practice. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thanks for tuning in. 
and we'll see you in the next episode. Special thanks to our professor, Lisa Archibald, for all her help in pointing us to an amazing selection of resources, a lot of which we didn't have time to talk about today. But we'll leave them linked for you guys in the description box in case you're interested in checking it out. Thank you, Lisa, for all the work that you do. We appreciate it very much. Bye. Bye.